you don't have your Bibles, Scripture is always going to be up there. So, as we start in verse 1 in chapter 11, the Word of God says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtain a good testimony. By faith we understand that the world's were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead still speaks, By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. It was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, our five points today are number one, the nature of faith, two, the proof of faith, three, the people of faith, four, the power of faith, and five, the practice of faith. So, as we jump into the first point, the nature of faith. And as we go back to verse 1, you see now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So what is the object of faith? See, some people think the object of faith is me, meaning that yourself, or something else, or some kind of object. But the object of faith, if you look at Verse 6 in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God is the object of our faith. Our faith has nothing to do with us, has to do with him and him only. In John 14, verse 1, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus Christ is also the object of our faith. Interestingly enough, understand, he's speaking to a Jewish audience here. And as Jesus speaks to the Jewish audience, he's claiming to be God here. This is a claim to his divinity. And does anyone know what that's called if you make yourself equal to God when you're not God? Blasphemy, Blasphemy, right? One of the reasons why the Pharisees wanted to stone him, because they thought he was a man trying to make himself equal to God. So this is actually one of the passages, and later on goes down to John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So one of the big absolute claims in the Gospel of John. So now we have false objects of faith. 
So the false objects of faith, if we go to Psalms 118 verse 9, it says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Faith in other people. Do you realize that people put so much faith in other people? Right? We put our faith in whoever's our political leaders. Right? We put faith in... Who else do we put faith in? Who was that? Celebrities. Celebrities. Here's a closer one. How about our spouses? Like the utmost faith. How about our children? How about our girlfriends or boyfriends? How about teachers or even pastors? You're not supposed to put your confidence in any person. And I'm talking about absolute confidence. I'm not saying like, hey, listen, you ask someone to take out the garbage and, you know, you expect them to take out the garbage. It's a little confidence there. But I'm talking about your absolute faith. Your faith should be in God and God alone. And only God. No one in your life should be above God or equal to God. Not supposed to happen. It's supposed to be God, then your spouse, then your children. So future parents, your kids are not elevated to the point of your spouse or God. They are after your spouse. They need to see what a good household is. So there's a hierarchy to things. And we put our trust and love into certain things prior to other things. Does that make sense? Okay. Proverbs 28, verse 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But whoever walks wisely, wisely will be delivered. How many people put faith in themselves? You ever notice the generation of, you could do it. You could be anything you want to be. Sure. Yeah. I could be an astronaut, right? No. God didn't give me that intellect. I'm sorry. No. I, I can't figure that stuff out. I'm not a rocket scientist. It's not going to happen. Could you, I don't know, play in the NBA? A lot of us can't, right? Some could, right? But most people can't. I think it's about 1% of high school students actually make it to the pros. And about 3% of college students. So do the math. Oh, if you work really hard, you could do this. Doesn't mean you don't work hard. I'm saying God has called us to do specific things at a specific time and a specific purpose. So he has a purpose in our lives. So he tells us what we should and can do. He gives us certain talents and things. So when we put our faith in ourselves, what happens? We don't have faith in God. And every time someone says, well, I want to put my faith in myself. I could do this. I could do that. Here's the reality. I always ask this, this one question. How well have you done so far without God? And the answer, every single time, is not good. Because when we have that conversation is when someone's usually at their lowest. So we're not to put our trust in our own heart. Also in Jeremiah it says the heart is wicked and deceitful. So you can't even trust your own heart. So they shall turn back. They shall be greatly ashamed. Who trust in carved images, 
who say to the molded images, you are our gods. You're not supposed to put faith in idols. So what's a modern-day idol? A modern-day idol could be anything. Could be a car. Could be your education. Could be technology. Could be anything that distracts you from God. If you put that above God. And people at the time were actually saying, hey, you know, we're going to make these carved images because they thought that these carved images indwelt a deity. So that was the dwelling place of a deity. So they actually thought these things were gods or the dwelling place of gods. How crazy is that? <laughs> now you're like, God can be in this like little toy. Now let's move on. Faith is personal trust in God. Personal trust in God. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 31, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Now, true faith cannot be secondhand. So, you ever hear the term that God has many children but no grandchildren? Well, this is where it's going to make sense. See, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. It's not a guarantee because your grandparents and your parents are Christians doesn't mean that you're going to be a Christian. That's not how it works. Your faith must be personal. So does that mean every Christian family that has kids, all the kids are going to come to Christ? Sadly, no. I'm not going to go into post-millennialism right now. But what they think is that you're going to have, the goal is to have a bunch of kids so they dominate the world because they think that they're going to Christianize the world. That's what a post-millennialist might believe. We'll go over that in the summer. <laughs> I'll make Jay do that one. <laughs> so, your faith must be personal. It has to be your reliance, your trust, and your faith in God himself. In John 4, 42, and they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for... We ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is the verse with the Samaritan woman when they're in Samaria. And then they believe that he is the Christ. Now, they were expecting a Messiah. So remember, the word Christ is, is the word Messiah in Greek. So Christ, Messiah is in Hebrew, right? And it means anointed one. So they were expecting an anointed one. Even the Samaritans were. So Samaritans had what is called was the Samaritan uh, Pentateuch, which is the first five books of Moses, the Torah, right? So they were expecting it. Then they realized, oh, this is the anointed one we've been waiting for, the one like Moses, because they read that in Deuteronomy. And then they come to the realization, this is where, now, the Samaritans to the Jews were half-breeds. So the Samaritans, they were conquered by the Assyrians. As they were conquered by the Assyrians, 
the Assyrians literally mated with women and made half Assyrian, half Jewish babies. In the Mishnah, which is the oral writings of the Jewish, they thought that they were, the Samaritan women, were menstruates from the cradle. Direct quote. What a menstruat is? It means menstruation. So they thought the men were subhuman, and then the women were menstruates from the cradle. Jesus went and spoke <laughs> to this woman. And then she comes to realize that he is the Christ. So when the Samaritans realized that Jesus was the anointed one that they were waiting for, that was a pretty big deal. So you understand that whole process there. <laughs> Let's move on. Faith and assurance. Back to Hebrews 11, verse 1. Says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Assurance accompanies faith. So in order for you to have assurance of your salvation, you must have faith of your salvation. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, it says, And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So this is what Peter fell, right? And he's like, hey, you of little faith. Faith may be mixed with doubt. Now notice he says, oh, you of little faith. He says, he didn't say, oh, you of no faith. I would beg the question, how many times have we doubted God? How many times have we been focused on God and then kind of turned away from God? Well, if you read the Old Testament, you see the Jewish people did that a lot. They were focused on God, then they started turning away from God. I don't know. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai... What did they build? A golden calf. Like literally, they just said, oh, we're going to make a god here. <laughs> it's like, don't do this. And then they went and did it. This shows what human nature does. We tend to take our eyes off of God and we tend to doubt God. Now, is doubting unbelief? That is the question. It is not. So if you doubt certain times, which is understandable because this is something that is difficult for people to grasp. When you're going through a trial or you're going through a, a metaphorical storm, how easy is it for, to doubt? People doubt in hard situations. This does not mean they're not believers. Here it says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Remember, it's not saying, oh, you have no faith. So sometimes people tend to judge people and say, oh, you have no faith. No, you just maybe have little faith at the moment. And remember, your faith grows with time and study of the word of God and faith in God. So this is why faith gives you more assurance in who he is and how he brings us through the various trials and tribulations. Faith and sight. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. How many of you know what's going to happen tomorrow? None of us. You think you know. We were just talking about the 90-something degree weather. Hey, I don't know. God might rapture us and take us home. Who knows? How often is the weather people wrong? 
a lot. The only job you can be like 40% right and still get paid a good amount of money. In the wrong business. No. That's what you guys should go to college for. <laughs> go to school for that. It's easy. You can just mess up. It's okay. No. But people don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen when you drive home. So that's why your faith needs to be an immediate thing. It can't be like, well, I'll just have faith later. No, it has to be now. Faith needs to come now. You need to have faith consistently. Faith as trust in what is unseen. Now, what do we have faith that is faith in that is unseen? What do we believe in that's unseen? Not the Christian answer. Give me a scientific answer. The wind. Gravity. Wind. What else? Something that's unseen that I guess you could see with a microscope. Particles, madams, right? And all that stuff, right? <laughs> Bacteria. Right? We understand that we can't see it directly, like without, you know, you know, equipment or whatever. But we understand that these things are there, right? Now, what else could we put now? Let's go back to the Christian answer now. What could we put our trust in that's unseen? How about the creator of the universe? God that created everything from nothing. You have to see him to understand he's alive. He's true. He's, he's everything. He is the constant and we're the variable. You actually don't really need a lot of evidence for that. In John 20, verse uh, 29, says, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So you're more blessed when you have not seen and still believe. That must have been a, like a crazy thing with Thomas, right? When he says, my Lord and my God. And I'm assuming he dropped to his knees and things like that. Imagine seeing... Jesus crucified, then seeing him risen, well, come through a wall, really, risen, and he said, hey, yeah, touch the holes in my body. Y'all will freak out. Don't lie. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Well, we don't have to go through all that. We don't have to go through what Thomas did, right? Because many of us would have doubted, too, because if we saw him crucified, how many of us would have doubted See, people knock doubting Thomas. Guess what? They all doubted. Writers of Scripture. As we move on, faith looks towards an unseen future. Further down in Hebrews chapter 11, in verses 13 and 14, it says... These all died in faith, not having received the promises, not having seen them afar off were assured of them, embraced them, and confused them, and confused that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Also in, in verses 8 and 10, you see Abraham who had faith and did not see everything. In verses 20 and 22 of the same chapter, you see Isaac. I don't want to go through them all, but there's a lot. <laughs> Jacob and Joseph in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and 26, and Moses. 
All these people were walking by faith and had no idea what was going to happen next. That should be our life, right? We should walk by faith and not by sight. Faith and obedience. You notice that the theme of obedience keeps coming up. It's a consistent thing. Faith and obedience do go hand in hand. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. True faith is demonstrated in obedience. Just like the patriarchs. And like Abraham, Isaac. Examples of obedient faith. Genesis chapter 6, verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. Noah builds the ark by faith. How many of you guys would actually build an ark? Seriously, like you think God's audible voice said, I want you to go build an ark. How many of you would actually do it? How many of us would second guess it? You can raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. I'll be like, no, really? Whole ark? 100 years? Come on. where Abraham offers Isaac by faith. In Genesis 22, 9 through 10. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Obviously, It was stopped, but Abraham acted in faith. How many of us would sacrifice our own son? Well, obviously that was a foreshadow of the father sacrificing the son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But you see the faith of Abraham going through that process. He knew that God was going to provide for him. In Exodus chapter 14, 15 to 16, Moses parts the sea by faith. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. A bunch of plagues happened in Egypt. And they still had little faith of what God can do. This is a very big picture of us because when we see the the miracle happen, we're like, yes, God is real. And then we see a circumstance and then we're like, well, is God real? Is he going to help me? That's our consistent cycle through our faith. And that was the thing at with the Israelites in Egypt, they started doubting God. In Joshua chapter 6, verses 2 to 5, says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war, and you shall go all around the city once. 
This you shall do for six days, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. How many of us would trust God to walk around a city seven times? In one day, you'd be like, no, what? For what? Now, if you notice, he says it before. God says to Joshua before, he says, I had given Jericho into your hand. He says, here, you're going to get it. All you have to do is this. Which Joshua still had to have faith. In John 21, verses 4 to 6, Jesus and his disciples fishing here. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And they said to him, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast, and now they were able to draw it, in because of the, or they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. How many of us would be like, hey, you know what? I'm on the left side of the boat. Do I really believe that if there's no fish over here, why would I trust there's going to be fish over here? It's like, what, six feet? Call it 10 feet. Call it 20 feet. I don't care. How many of us would really think that, well, if there's no fish over here, there's no fish over here? Well, here's the interesting thing. They were trained fishermen, weren't they? So they understood a concept, and they saw this. Well, if there's no fish on this side, there's probably going to be no fish on this side. Well, they still had faith, and they said, you know what? Jesus said, do it. Let's do it. Now, faith and works. As we move to James chapter 2, 14 to 18, it says, What does a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, said this was the epistle of straw. I understand why. I don't agree with him, but I understand why. Because he came from a Catholic background, and he thought because faith and works, you were saved. He's saying, no, this is saying faith and works, you were saved. Slight misinterpretation. It's okay. Listen, he did a lot of good stuff. We're here because of guys like him. 
But true faith is demonstrated in good deeds. Now, the meaning of the term good works for Paul, the works were works of the law. So some people thought this was a counterbalance to, so James and Paul were talking about two different things. That's not true. They were actually complementing each other. So James was actually talking about works that were works in love and faith. When in Ephesians, when he says we're not saved by works, Paul says we're not saved by works. He's talking about the law. Here, he's talking about faith and love. That makes sense. That's the contrast that you'll see a lot of people think because, and then some people twist it and say, well, we're saved by faith and works. And that's typically a Catholic doctrine, or you'll even see it in some cult doctrines. Cult doctrines being the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons or any other cult like that. The Branch Davidians, if you've ever seen Waco, Texas, the documentary. The shootout? No? Okay. Google it later. It's okay. But I'm going to stay here for just a moment. In verse 14, it opens that probably the best-known portion of James's letter here in 14 to 26. See, both, because it pointedly summarizes James' main theme, obedience and spiritual consistency. And because it is a source of controversy... Once again, we're going to talk about Martin Luther, who suggested that it was impossible to reconcile the writings of Paul and James. And as I said before, they're complementary. They're not opposing to each other. So remember, the Bible has no contradictions. So when you see the contradictions, you're going to start to learn more. When you think you see a contradiction, go deeper. You'll see that it actually complements each other. So faith and deeds are not separate from gifts so that a Christian may have one but not the other. See, genuine Christian's faith inevitably produces deeds. You have to. Because if you just sit on your butt and think that that's what it is to be a Christian, you're wrong. Because it's called, we're called to be servants. Servants do what? They serve. It's an amazing concept, I know. Like, oh. The Christian church has this very relaxed view of, hey, let's relax and be raptured. Do I think there's this thing called over-serving? Oh, yeah. Do Christians get caught in that too? Oh, yeah. But we're supposed to live a life of servitude. And that's part of being... uh, doing good for others and blessing others. Hey, Jesus went to the cross for our sins. That was a type of service. He washed the disciples' feet. That's a type of service. I did not come to be served, but to serve. So he did good deeds for people. Did he heal people? Absolutely. Did he spread the gospel? Absolutely. He went to the cross, rose again. An absolute service In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, true faith is in love. Faith in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But faith working through love. If you have true faith, it is in love. And you are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
It is done in love. In Luke chapter 8, verse 15, but the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, kept it or keep it and bear fruit with patience. True faith is consistently productive. Doesn't mean you're going to be the perfect Christian. Doesn't mean that you're going to be the next greatest preacher. You're going to be the greatest evangelist, the greatest humanitarian. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means it's constantly productive. It means you're constantly working to be more like Christ on a consistent basis. And your life is constantly changing. Number two, here is the proof of faith. And we're going to go through some Old Testament promises. If you want to underline in uh, your Bibles, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it's the substance of things hoped for. And we move on to the promise of faith. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the proto-evangelium. If you ever hear that term, don't worry. It just means first gospel. That's all it means. I bless you. If you read it somewhere, proto, well, it's a crazy word. No, it just means first gospel. This is the first prophecy of Jesus Christ. So you see the promise of a pardon here. So, and between your seed and her seed, I'm not going to go into the specifics of this entire passage because I could sit here for about an hour explaining the passage. But this is him going to the cross. And remember, it was a virgin birth, right? Her seed, she, women don't have seeds. If you want to go further into this too, if you want another Old Testament passage, read all of Isaiah 53. In Jeremiah 33, verse 3, Call to me and I will answer you. And show you a great mighty things which you do not know. This is the promise of prayer. So you have a promise of pardon. Now you have a promise of prayer. In Exodus chapter 15 verse 26. And it said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God. And do what is right in his sight. Give ear to his commandments. And keep all of his statutes. I will put... None of the diseases on you which I have brought to the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is the promise of provision. He provides for us. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. Now, back to Exodus for a moment. Don't you just wish that was kind of like how COVID worked? You won't give me COVID, right? <laughs> Bad joke, I know. Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 26, verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This is the promise of faith. Isaiah. This is why we have to read the entirety of the scripture. We have to look at what's called the meta-narrative, the big picture, the big story. 
Because if we only look at certain verses, we don't get the full picture. This is why we have to constantly cross-reference. That means we're going back and forth in the Old, the New Testament, different books. Because you see faith throughout the entire Bible, all 66 books. You see salvation through all the 66 books. You see Jesus Christ through all the 66 books. You see the Holy Spirit through all 66 books. You see God the Father through all 66 books. You see every doctrine virtually in all 66 books. This is why you can't just read the New Testament. You just can't read the Old Testament. You have to read everything. Now back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The evidence of things not seen. This is the proof. Faith believes before it sees. Faith believes before it sees. Now, I know this is like a, I don't know if you guys have ever done any success coaching. This is not any like success, prosperity gospel, any type of stuff. And, you know, you speak into existence type of garbage. I call it garbage because only God can speak things into existence. People tell you, oh, man, just faith it until you make it. No, it's a horrible idea. But faith in God, and he's going to provide for you. So number three. So now we have the people of faith. In verse 2, in chapter 11, it says, For, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Faith in God during problems. Now you may be going through problems right now. You may be going through problems in your educational life, your occupational life, your marital life, your parental life, whatever else life, your health life, whatever it is. But having faith in God during our problems is where it's at. Because if we go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 10, and by faith Abraham obeyed and called out the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise in a foreign country, dwelling in the tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham faced many problems, but he succeeded by faith. So it wasn't him. His only part is having faith. Faith in God during pain. You want to hear pain? Read the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, verses 18 to 22, it says, While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, 
and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job lost all he had, yet he did not complain. This is a parent's worst nightmare, losing your children. Ask any parent. They'll tell you the same thing. One of the worst nightmares. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. How many of us go through something like that and said, blessed is the name of the Lord. That really does show our faith. That's a big test of our faith. In Job chapter 13, verses 15, it says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. See, Job stayed firm God could slay Job and he still would trust God and not question him. Faith. In Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. Job maintained his faith and he knew that God was alive. In Job 42, 12 through 13. This is after Job gets ripped for a few chapters. When, you know, God starts off, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And kind of questioned him. And all these questions that he could not answer. And I, I don't know, I would be absolutely terrified if God was questioning me like that. Not going to lie, I would probably cry. Not going to lie. I would just drop down and be like, oh man, he's, he's talking to me. I don't want him talking like that. That's scary. You know why? Because God taketh and giveth. Takes away and gives. He's the creator of the entire universe. He is the most powerful being ever. And I don't think people really understand that. That's because back to last, about the fear of God and the reverence of God, that's why we have reverence for God. So now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than in his, his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. While Job remained faithful, in the end, he ended up being twice as wealthy. Now, faith in God during prayer. I'm not going to put the passage up there because it's just too many verses. But it's in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 25 to uh, 41. I'm going to brief this. Elijah was with the priests of Baal, right? They wanted to see whose God will rain down fire. Now, the priests of Baal, what they're doing, they're cutting themselves, they're dancing around, doing a whole bunch of crazy stuff. And then Elijah, being the sarcastic man that he is... He asked him, was he asleep? Is he in the bathroom? Not sure. And all of a sudden, they kind of give up. And you see 
the God of the Bible rained down fire on an offering in an altar. So after the priests of Baal were done doing what they did, Elijah prepares an altar and prays. And the altar is consumed with fire. Faith in God during persecution. Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 to 28. Once again, we're not going to go through the whole passage because we'll be here for a long time. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel remained faithful and God delivered him. We all heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Now, do we also know that Daniel was exiled to Babylon from Israel? I don't know about persecution. That's some tough persecution. Well, hey, listen, you know what? We're going to take you to another country, and you're just going to serve us. That's rough. So he went through a lot of persecution, but he remained faithful. Number four, we have the power of faith. Now, as we jump to verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. So first we have the creator. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. We have in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God created the world that we all enjoy. So should we enjoy the world? Absolutely. This is called natural revelation. So there's special revelation and natural revelation. Natural revelation is when you see the things around you, you start to understand that there is a creator of the universe. Special revelation would be the Bible itself. Write that down. The creation. In John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. All was made from nothing. Do you understand that defies the laws of thermodynamics? Matter cannot be created or destroyed. Literally, created from nothing. Do you know the smartest people in the world cannot create a grain of sand from nothing? I know I get into my apologetics mode and all that stuff. Now we have the control. In Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created that were in heaven and that were on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. God not only created all things, but he controls all things as well. He is sovereign. He's in control of all things. So he's the creator and sustainer of all things. So yes, you just breathe. Yes, he allowed that to happen. Imagine, controlling all things. We can't even control ourselves. Parents, I know we can't control our kids. And those who don't have kids, you know that you are not controlled. But he's in control of all things. So why wouldn't we put our faith in him all the time? I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about a walking faith of consistently looking to him for all your provisions. Now, our last point is the practice of faith. Now, we're going to skip the next few verses, and we're going to go right to verse 6. 
But without faith, it is impossible to please, God, please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. We cannot please God without faith. The person must believe who God is. For example, there is, there's a, a theological debate about putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Well, some people that just believe that you just need to put your faith in Jesus or just believe in Jesus. Well, the question is, what are you putting your faith in? Some people believe that Jesus is what? A good teacher. They believe he's a good person. He said some good things. He's a figment of someone's imagination. But ultimately, it's okay to believe in him as a person who lived. Right? No, you, that's not what the belief context is in the first century when this was written. Belief means faith in, trust in. But you're putting your trust in the divinity of Jesus Christ. So you must believe in who God is. For he who comes to God must believe that he is God. He is all-powerful. He knows all. He is in all places at all time. God promises he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, this does not mean that you're going to get whatever you want. But he will give you what you need. And he will bless you if you diligently seek him. Now, a recap of our points. Number one, you have the nature of faith. Number two, you have the proof of faith, the people of faith, and the power of faith, and then the practice of faith. So, we move to our application. Apply now because now you apply. What to believe? Do you believe because faith makes sense or because faith? doesn't need to make sense. Some Christians think that people cannot understand God or sh should not try. Others believe that nothing true is irrational or include true faith. The great church leader, Augustine, it's not Augustine, don't say it to Pastor Jay, he gets upset. It's Augustine. <laughs> was among the first to ponder the relationship of faith and reason. He concluded that I believe in order to understand, meaning that true understanding follows commitment to God and that we cannot hope to understand God by human reason alone. Almost 900 years later, the great theologian Thomas Aquinas wrote that reason, while marred by sin, can know God through arguments and proofs, God gave us minds which should be developed and used. To ignore intellectual growth is to live a stunted and naive life. Ouch. This is why I teach my 10th grade apologetics class. Not apologetics, critical thinking. You go much further with critical thinking. 
Because ultimately, if you're truly thinking critical, I think you'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. God wants our trust and faith. Even while we ponder and wonder about many matters mysterious to us, God has spoken to us, to the mind, heart, and will in Jesus Christ. We do not believe in a void nor leap in the dark. Faith is reasonable. Though reason alone cannot explain the whole of it, which is very true, so use your mind to think of things, uh, think things through. Believe room for the unexplainable works of God. There a quote from George Mueller. A man who, he built many uh, orphanages throughout England. And you know the concept of living hand to mouth? Imagine you're running an orphanage and dinner time's approaching and you have to feed, let's say, a thousand kids. And you're like, I don't have food to feed the kids. What would you do? Most people freak out, start doing He's like, I'm going to go pray. God always provided food for the orphans every time he prayed. It's said that he has over a million prayers answered. This man went through a lot of stuff also. His first wife died. Then his daughter died. He did the funeral for both. And then he remarried. Then his second wife died. And then in his 80s, became a missionary. He lived by faith, moment by moment, and prayed moment by moment. I urge you, if you haven't read the autobiography of George Mueller, go read it. You'll learn a little bit of faith. Faith begins where man's power ends. He knew he had no power, so all he had was faith. So as we move to our discussion questions, two questions, very simple. What is faith? You're going to go through Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And is our faith based on blind faith? So break up into groups of four or five, maybe six, and start discussing the questions.